We'll be reading the first seven verses from Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thus far, the holy word of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we continue in our worship, we pause at this moment. I'm reminded, Lord, even many years ago in seminary, We consider the valley of dry bones that lay before Ezekiel. And if it was not for your spirit that came when Ezekiel prophesied, dry bones would remain dry bones. Death would remain death. There would have been no life. But because your spirit came and blessed the prophecy of the prophet, blessed the words of your man when he obeyed you, preached the word to the bones you clothed brought the bones together you clothed them with flesh and you put life in them lord were it not for your spirit we would be but dry bones and father though uh, we are living breathing literally in the physical sense but we're you're living breathing people new creatures in christ and yet lord we come out of a world in some sense we feel parched we come to you needy. Uh, we come with discouragements and with despairs. We come with questions. Uh, we come as sinners. And, Lord, we need to hear your word. So even as we hear the children of old uh, crying out for water, Lord, would you bless us through the preached word with the living water, even Christ Jesus our Lord, that we might be blessed and refreshed, renewed and strengthened and built up, to continue our service for our great King, who is worthy, worthy above all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I guess if uh, you children look at me, you might be able to imagine this, but when I was young, the age of some of you here, 
there was no such thing as the Internet. We had radio and TV. That was it. I was born after those, those things we were blowing about, but that was it, radio and TV. And at this time of year, all sorts of people would be out in the shops and stores in the mall, and Christmas music was playing constantly over speakers in the stores, um, usually from the local radio station. One of the common songs that was sung was by a child missing their two front teeth, very acutely saying, as only a child missing two teeth could do, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Another common feature that is still with us today is the stores would have the Santa, I put that in quotes, seated in a large chair and elves all around directing children and parents as they would come and sit in Santa's lap to whisper in his ear to tell him what they wanted for Christmas. Some of the older children wisely started asking how could there be so many Santas in so many stores? I thought there was only one and that he was busy at the North Pole. Well, this is certainly far far removed from the time and the location of our text in Exodus this morning. So, So why do I mention these odd cultural practices of our day? Because there's a connection. Every Hebrew, indeed, as Moses has recorded it, had one thing on their mind. It was all that they wanted there as they were traversing the wilderness area. Everyone all wanted the same thing. They wanted water. And we need to be honest. They needed water. We are completely dependent upon water. There was no water for the people to drink. In fact, the cattle, the sheep, the goats, the donkeys, if if they could have spoken, they too would have said they wanted water. Water is essential to life. And indeed, um, water plays a large role. In the scriptures, it's much that's tied with it. We might have joined in that course and said, uh, all I want is water to drink. But I think that we would have to say we've got something wrong. What we really need is something greater. There's something greater than even water, even within a wilderness. And that is the living water. I suspect that you have heard enough of Exodus at this point that you've already figured that one of our main points is going to have something to do with complaining, with murmuring. Yep, we're at another passage, and that's one of the main themes. But that will not be the main point. It is is a fact that water is necessary to sustain life of plants and animals and humans. God made it so. He, he, the way he created the world was that we're dependent upon water. It's one of the very first things that we see in creation account is that water was there. Water covered the face of the deep, and then the Lord spoke with authority, and the waters were separated from the earth. We read in pages of Scripture of how in the Garden of Eden there was a river that flowed out from underneath the throne of God. And we come all the way to the book of Revelation, and we see a similar picture, water going out from the throne of God, a picture of life, water. We understand is that we are dependent on water 
for life. And we see that that water comes from God. Life comes from God. I hope you remember, in our, even as we're talking about these things, that your memories are carried back to John's Gospel, chapter 4, where we saw the Samaritan woman at Sychar, the, the well that Jacob had dug as she came out in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, ashamed of her, well, the way she lived her life. She did not want to be seen by the other women. And there she encounters Jesus. She came to draw water, literal water, to meet the needs of her household. But Jesus offered to give her living water. Um, she's very much stuck in the paradigm. The well's there. There's the water there. She's come with her pot to fill, and there's things to draw the water. And she's thinking literally of water. But Jesus offers to give her a living water. What he says to her is water that would become a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Because Jesus was offering her something even more critical. He was offering her eternal life. The work of the Holy Spirit, whereby his completed work would be applied in her life, that she would have eternal life, life everlasting, the very reason that he came into the world, the reason that the Father had sent him into the world. And indeed, this living water that comes from Jesus Christ was what the children of Abraham here in the wilderness of sin needed above all. It's so evident with their constant complaining and murmuring that, that when the need becomes so evident, you don't see them falling on their face and crying out, Oh, God, have mercy on us. God, would you have mercy and supply us with the need of water? Unworthy sinners as we are. No, they, they turn on Moses. Here they are. They've been freed from physical slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. But they were still slaves to sin. Every trial and test in the wilderness was designed by the Lord to show Israel their need of faith in their God. The God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers who they had heard about, who walked by faith and not by sight, who believed God and it was accounted unto them as righteousness. The Lord was leading them to see that life was more than water, uh, more than the bread that he supplied every day and the meat that was brought in on the winds of the evening. God was calling them to live by faith and not by sight, even as he calls on us to live that way today. God was drawing them to look beyond themselves, to look for the promised seed of the woman and to believe God's promise that he had made to Abraham that he was the father of that seed. And indeed, as Abraham believed God, Abraham was justified by faith alone. God is teaching his people there in the wilderness. As we've said so many times, there's so much of Egypt in Israel even as we, being saved and called out of the world, there's still much of the world that is within us. We're going to use four main heads, beginning with this main theme that jumps right out, no water. And then, as I said last week, we're going to have more sermons where we're going to have a, a heading as complaints. But this time it's going to be complaints and an, and an accusation.
and then a cry to the Lord. And then the faithless Lord with a provision. And then we'll wrap up with memorials to sin. Our need is no different than the Israelites in the wilderness. We, we all have this problem. Imagine if you put just a little bit of thoughtful effort into it right now, that there's probably some point in the last week or two where you had a thought or maybe even you said out loud, out loud it would be great if I just had fill in the blank. If I could only have, because we're prone to that. There's so many of these things in this world that we think, if I could just have that, oh man, it would just be great. And it varies for every one of us. And it's particularly true this time of the year, because that's what's going on all around us. The culture, the advertising, everyone is bombarding everybody with this idea of thinking about what you want. Making out lists and Making your parents aware and grandparents aware, your spouse aware of what you really want. When really what we should be focused on is what we need. What we need. We need Jesus Christ. Even if we're already born from above, we need Jesus Christ. Our need for him is continually and constant. We need him who is the living water, the one who is the bread of heaven and the only savior of sinners. And so we begin with the water. Verse 1 tells us, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephadim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So we see they, they set out. Remember where they were at. The last stop was Elam with 12 springs of water. You can imagine when God's command is to get up and move. Um, we haven't come to where it's explained in the text that when the cloud arose, then they arose. They broke camp and they were going to move on until the cloud settled. But the Lord is already leading them and we're told that the Lord commanded that they were to move on. It was according to his commandment. They're supposed to go on. And um, you can imagine uh, a little bewilderment. This is such a wonderful camping site. Look at all the water. we got these palm trees. But the Lord would commanded them to go. And so they're crossing the wilderness of sin, heading to Sinai. Because God is giving the directions. Remember that. God is giving the directions. He, 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 thus far, they, they still don't see that is the next point with a complaint. They still see it's all on Moses. So they camp in a place called Rephidim. We're not sure where that is, like a lot of these places. They're lost in antiquity. But this place, there was no water for the people to drink. Nor all those animals that they had with them. They required a lot of water. I think I mentioned to you before that... Uh, you know, being out growing up around the farm, I mean, that was a constant matter of constant importance. My, my grandfather farmed in Michigan, and, and we had waterers that the cows could get to, and they were designed so that even in the winter they didn't freeze up. And one of the daily routines was to go out and make sure that they weren't froze up because animals depend upon water as much as we do, even maybe quantity-wise more. If I remember my numbers right, you know, a, a milk cow needs 35 gallons of water a day. And there's all this livestock, but there's no water. 
Now remember, the Lord has led them to this place. We've been told back in chapter 16, verse 4, that the Lord is testing them to see if they will walk in his law. That is, will they walk according to his commandments? Are they, are they willing to follow their covenant faithful Lord? He's given them reason to do so. He's shown his mighty works in Egypt. He was making himself known not just to the Egyptians, but to Israel. They've seen his mighty hand and his power to deliver. They, they were there on the other side of the Reed Sea when the Lord brought the waters down on the armies of Egypt and destroyed them. And they had a great big party. So they've seen that the Lord's worthy, but will they walk? And then they left there, and there was a more severe test. They went to Marah. They needed water. They were thirsty, and there was water. But remember what the problem was? It was bitter, maybe even poisonous. But God made a provision. He's demonstrated even then that he was able to supply them their need. Showed Moses a tree that he cast into the water, and the bitter waters became sweet. And the Rephidim, God is going to do something even greater. He is going to supply water in the most unexpected way. When they came to Mar, there was water. It was bitter. There are Rephidim. There's no water. Not bitter water. Not swamp water. There is no water. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Some of you uh, maybe have traversed the, uh, the United States and You've had the occasion to drive across Death Valley and uh, imagine uh, the early settlers who you know, did not know when they set out across that desert as to how far it was across there. There was no source of water and we're told how you know, earlier bands of travelers found the bones and the remains of those who ran out of water. This is the situation for the children of Israel, but at Rephidim, God will supply water where there is none. And he will do so with an even greater supernatural work by his hand than he did at the bitter waters of Mara, as we shall see. And what we see then is the Lord is proving his power. What is he doing? He's, he's making himself known to Israel again and again and again. And what's the one consistent thing that he's revealing to Israel? It's there in his name. I am the covenant faithful Lord. I have promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I will make a great nation of you. I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Why would he then fail them and let them perish in the wilderness? They have no faith. They just look at Rephidim, and there's no water. And they've forgotten the promises of God. They don't understand so much about God. But God has not changed. And the Lord proves himself over and over again to Israel, even though they're still walking by sight. Very much like the generation of Jesus. As we saw in the book of John, they saw mighty signs and wonders. And even after seeing mighty signs and wonders, what did they demand? They said, well, show us a sign and then we'll believe. He's already shown them many signs. Uh, the people have recognized that there's something unique about Jesus. He, he preaches, he teaches with authority, not like their scribes. But the religious leaders are always looking for something more. 
Before we move on, let's just consider. Do you struggle to walk by faith and not by sight? We do. That's, it's a work of God's grace in us that we would learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, that we would read these accounts, like this one before us, the book of Exodus, and believe in the power of our God to supply all our needs. And I suspect as I look out across this room that there are many of you who have walked with the Lord for some years and, and you can testify. You, you can tell stories of the Lord's faithfulness to provide. When, when, you, when your situation was it seemed just as hopeless as Rephadim, that there was no water, there was no provision, there was no supply, and yet you can testify. I hope that you do testify that to your children. You tell them of the faithfulness of God and how, though you once walked by sight, the Lord instructed you and brought you along and worked in you and matured you to learn to walk by faith and by not by sight, because that's what our children likewise need to do. It's so remarkable when just we think about what we saw in John's gospel, the, these people demanding a sight, or I, I mean a, another mighty work. You know, he's made the lame to walk. He's made the blind to see, even a man blind from birth. He's opened their eyes. Remember that big controversy? He's cleansed lepers. He's, he's raised the dead, the widow of Nain's son. He raised Lazarus, the four-day dead man who stunk when they opened up the tomb. And yet, so many of them refused to believe. They, just, they were only looking through what they could see. And they were, because of the sinfulness of their heart, the deadness their hearts unable to believe that he was able to save can God save a sinner by faith alone by grace alone through faith alone through Christ alone can you really do that can you see that you see the evidence of it. You see the fruit of it. And by faith you believe that God's able to do that. And I hope that's your testimony. For indeed, there are many down through history who would testify that the Lord is faithful. God is faithful to what he has promised. So then we move then to complaints and accusations, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 opens, like so many verses we've seen before in the earlier chapters, there's no water, so therefore, because there's no water in this place, therefore the people contended. It's almost like it makes us justified. You know, there's no water, so we've got a right to complain. And who do they complain against? Who do they contend? They, this is actually a different word than the murmuring they're complaining. They contended. This is a quarrel. Be another way to translate this word. They're quarreling with Moses. And look at what they do. They make a demand of Moses, a man like them. Give us water that we may drink. Now, they've seen the Lord supply water through Moses, but what do they miss? They only, they've, they've only seen Moses the Lord's instruments. They, they fail to see that it is God who, who Moses obeys, who is instructing Moses and equipping and empowering Moses. All they see is Moses. And so they contend with Moses and 
because they walk in by sight. They say, Moses, give us water that we may drink. So Moses says to them, he challenges them. He, he asks them a question. Why do you contend with me? Because all the evidence is there that what's happened thus far has been God's doing. Moses didn't bring plagues down on Egypt. Moses didn't part the waters of the Reed Sea. Moses didn't bring the waters crashing back on the, the uh, Egyptian army. It has all been the work of God. Why do you contend with me? And then he asked the most important question that they should wrestle with. Why do you tempt the Lord? Remember the Lord is testing them. Back in chapter 16, verse 4, he says that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What is God's law? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments that are going to be given at Sinai? No. Everywhere that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is God's law. The whole of this, this is God's law. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What God has spoken, it is law. We are to take it and obey it, obey it and live by it. And, and yet here they are, they're testing the Lord. The Lord's testing to see whether they'll obey him. A perfectly proper thing for God to do, isn't it? He's, he's led them out. He, he's, these are his people. He's proved that he's faithful. He made a promise to their father Abraham 430 years ago that he would deliver them out of Egypt. And, and it's happened on that very day. He's brought them out. And he's demonstrated his great power. He's demonstrated he is greater. Who is it that they're testing? The creator. They're but creatures. That's true for us. Which one of us can create anything out of nothing? Our God is able to just speak and create whole worlds out of nothing. What are we before him? As a matter of fact, as his creatures, we are absolutely, completely dependent upon him for the very breath of life that is within us. He sustains us. He has knit us together in a secret place into the womb, and he brings us forth. And throughout our days, he sustains us in our very being. And, and would we test him? Yeah, we would. His tests, though, are designed to teach them what? To walk by faith and not by sight. Just like the tests that we face in God's providence in our own lives. But for now, this is remarkable. For now, God's mercies are new every morning. He remembers that they've only just begun to learn about him. They, they've been in Egypt. They're, they're, they're full of Egypt. They live like Egypt, as I've told you before, and we're going to see later on, that they're dragging God's idols, the workmanship of man's hands, along with them. Later on, there's a list of some of the, the, the Egyptian gods that they're, they're dragging around with them. They, they haven't let go of all that. And part of bringing them to Rephaim where there's no water is to teach them that these idols that they're dragging along with them, they're of no help. They need to learn to look to the Lord and rest upon him alone. 
Psalm 78 we've referred to several times because it, it's, it's a psalm about these events here in the book of Exodus. Psalm 78 verse 18 says, And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Remember when they were hungry and God gave them bread? Later on they complained. It was like, oh, we had it so good when we were in Egypt. You know, we had the leeks and the garlics. Remember I heard about, you know, when we sat by our meat pots. The food of their fancy. You know, this uh, manna from heaven. It's the same day after day after day. We can get, we can understand that, right? Children, just, just for a moment, imagine if every day when you sat down at the table and your mother set a plate before you, it had exactly the same thing on it. Maybe it's just a, a slice of bread with some butter on it. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, tomorrow, breakfast, lunch, dinner. The next day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. We tend to move to complaining. And this is who they are. This is the sinfulness. They they tested God because what did they want? They they were asking for the food of their fancy. They wanted something more to their liking. But Psalm 106 also talks about this. Verse 14, we're told, But they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. Later on in verse 25, But complained in their tents. So it's not just when they're outside, then when they go home, the conversation in the tent of each house, so there's this murmuring and complaining, they're complaining in the tents. And they did not heed the voice of their, it's the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, that's what's used there. In time, the Lord will discipline his people. We're going to come to that in the book of Exodus soon. As he has worked with them, he's been patient with them, he's showed them mercy, he's graciously provided again and again. Then the Lord begins to discipline them. In Psalm 106.29 talks about that. In, in time the Lord will discipline his people. Thus, he says, thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out amongst them. And some of you can remember some what those plagues are going to be. But right now the Lord is remembering where they're at. And here they are complaining, they're contending, they're quarreling with Moses, even though the Lord is the one who has brought them there. Verse 3 shows just how contentious the people were as well as how irrational they are. And the, the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, just think about it. Is that, is that rational? You know, would, would Moses have done that? Would he have gone to the great lengths? Moses has suffered greatly. All this has taken place. Moses has been at the helm. He's been out at the forefront. He's been leading them. Would he have gone through all that just to bring them out to the wilderness, just to watch them die of thirst? It's it's not a rational charge that they bring against him. And this is the second time that they've made this charge again, back in chapter 6, verse 3. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we had the bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
Was, was that rational? Can we relate? Are there times where we, we, we make irrational charges against God? Surely, these people are not unlike us. Notice, as stated in these events, that they all were accomplished by God, but the people have only focused on Moses, as if he has done all these things by his power. Moses is but a mere man. And indeed, that's, that's all there are that have come from Abraham down to this time, but mere man. Indeed, from Adam onward, we're all but mere man, except there's one extraordinary exception, one who is more than a man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not lose sight of that. Brothers and sisters, how often have we walked by sight and not by faith? Maybe I should turn the question around and say, is there a day where we've walked by faith and not by sight? This this is not far from any one of us, this struggle to live this way. How often have we blamed others for what God is doing in our lives? Our beloved spouse, children, blaming your parents when God has ordained certain things, and perhaps vice versa, children being blamed by their parents. God is working in our spouses, even in their weakness, so that a wife should learn to look to God and not to man. I remember some of the training I got through CCF about counseling, about counseling, and there's a, there's a temptation for us as with spouses to expect more of our wife or our husband, as the case may be, than, than is warranted to put pressures and demands upon them to be as God to us, to supply the things that only God can supply. And the Lord will test us to turn us away from that. How often do husbands expect their wives to bring them peace and joy and contentment when these things come from the Lord? Quite often the tensions in our relationships between a husband and wife are caused by one or the other, usually both of them, when they're expecting their spouse to do what God alone can do. And there's one other danger, too. A member of Paul Tripp, he talks about this. That, and I don't know if he's picking on moms or maybe with all his research and counseling he's done, it's more of an issue. But he says that he's encountered many women that he would say they have the Messiah complex. The mom is always ready to rush in and to fix everything for the children, to take care of every single issue so that the children would look to them as the one who saves, rather than teaching the child to look to Christ. How do we do that, parents? How do we teach our children to walk by faith and not by sight? Well, it's when we, we teach them we have limitations. And, and we gather them together, and as a family, we pray about the needs of the family to show them that we depend upon God. For God is faithful, and he alone is faithful. 
and that we as parents were very limited. You know, even with a child who's got the little boo-boo, right? You know, kiss my boo-boo mama. Does it do anything to the boo-boo? No. Uh, there's, there's no power in a mother's kiss to heal the wound. It's a kindness and tenderness that mothers show well. But we must teach our children to walk by faith and not by sight. And here's Moses at the head of this horde of contentious people. I can't imagine the pressures on Moses. So what does Moses do in this situation? Well, that brings us to our third point. Moses does what we should do again and again and again. Day by day, moment by moment, Moses does what we should do. A cry to the Lord in the Lord's provision. Verse 4, what do we see? Moses appeals. It's literally a cry. He cries out. I can only imagine him crying out. How great was that cry? These people are ready to kill him. That's what he tells the Lord. They're ready to revolt. The Hebrew captures the, 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 uh, the sense of impending action, the urgency. Moses knew there was no water. Have you ever thought about this? Moses was probably thirsty too. We lose sight of that sometime in these stories. Moses would have probably liked to have a good drink. But he's not in the revolt. Moses turns to the covenant faithful God. He goes to him with the issue. Pause for a minute and reflect on just how much this man has grown since we first encountered him. we, We encounter him in the the little basket of the bulrushes, but I'm thinking about after he's, he's fled Egypt and he's on the, the backside of the wilderness of Midian keeping sheep. And he sees the burning bush and he has his first encounter with God. What was Moses like then? Timid? Timid, deflecting, seeking excuses for why somebody else should do it. And yet Moses has become sanctified. Moses has grown. Moses has matured. Moses has learned to walk by faith through extreme tests. Moses began by facing down the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh. And the Lord proved himself trustworthy to Moses. Moses has learned that the Lord is faithful. Have you learned that the Lord is faithful? Is that one of your desires? Do, do, do you pray, Christian, Lord, show me your faithfulness. Teach me. Even as you order my day, help me, Lord, in my hardships, my, my difficulties, the trials, the, the places when I come up short, when I find my own insufficiencies, my inadequacies, when, when people around me, other humans, fail me. Lord, teach me to trust in you. Alone, Moses has done this. The Lord has proved that he's trustworthy. So Moses turns to the one true and living God. And in verse 5 and 6, the Lord answers him. We're just told in verse 4 that Moses cried. He says, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. That's how critical it is. That's how great their quarrel is. They're ready to murder Moses. God responds to Moses apparently quickly. 
Verse 5, then the Lord said to Moses, he gives him very specific instruction, go out before the people. These people who are quarreling with you, they want to stone you. Go out before the people. So what do we see here? Moses walks by faith. He trusts the Lord that he can go out before this mob and the Lord's going to protect him. And then he tells him to take some of the elders. Maybe it's the 70 or maybe it's just the head of each tribe, the, the chief elder. But he takes some of the elders from amongst the people. They're called out by Moses to go with him. He selects them. And they're to go with him as witnesses of what the Lord is about to do. Remember what the people are saying to Moses? Give us water! And Moses can't do that. He hasn't given them anything. He's just been faithful to obey the Lord. And so this time, God says, take some of the elders with you. Moses is going to go and obey the Lord, and he wants witnesses that the people will know, that the elders in turn can come back to the people and say, this is what we saw. And it wasn't Moses that did it. So, take some of the elders. God continues, he says, uh, and take the rod in your hand. This rod, remember, it was Moses' rod, and then, then Aaron was using it. Now it's back in Moses' rod. Later we hear about uh, Aaron's rod blossoming. Um, I really prefer what I've encountered in some of the theologians. It's, this is the rod of God in the hand of the prophet of God, whether it's in Moses' hand or Aaron's hand. It's a picture of God's power in the hands of his man. And he takes the rod, the very rod that he struck the Nile with. Notice he says that. The end of verse 5. Also take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river. When he struck the river, what happened? Water became blood. I think that's remarkable. He says, take that same rod. And then he tells him, verse 6, the Lord promises that he's, he's going to be with him. And he goes to the rock at Horeb. And he tells Moses here to strike the rock. And the Lord promised that when he did, water would come out of the rock. Is that what you would expect? Would, would you expect just striking a rock for water just to start coming out of rock? Does, does water just inherently lie inside of rocks? No, they're rocks. But this is not an ordinary thing. God is acting supernaturally. And the Lord promised that when Moses struck the rock, water would come out of it. For what purpose? God says so that the people may drink. And what does the verse 6 end with? And Moses did so. He obeyed. Moses doesn't say, no, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not, are you sure about this? This, this, I don't know if this is a good plan, Lord. I'm, I'm having a hard time following. No, Moses just obeyed. He's walking by faith. He believes God, and he does as God has commanded, which is how we are to live. God has revealed his will to us in his word. We should be reading his word, that we would understand his word, and praying that the Holy Spirit would help us to apply his word. Moses hasn't even written probably any of the word yet, but he's hearing the word of God. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And what happened? Water came forth that the people may drink. The Lord supplied them. There's data elsewhere that suggests that this rock can continue to supply, that uh, that this place gets a name and there's pools of water there on and on and on. So you think about this 
wilderness area. God provides for Israel then, and, and he provides for future travelers that would come into that area. little surprise that it's going to end up with a name, but it's a name that's going to teach some things. So the Lord supplied. Psalm 105 celebrates this. We, we sang Psalm 105 several times, and we, we want to revisit it as well. He, that is God, opened the rock, and water gushed out of it. And it ran in dry places. You know what it says? A trickle? Is it a drip, drip, drip? No. It ran in dry places like a river. That's our God. Abundance, superabundance, above and beyond what we could ask or think. And the water, I'm sure, was good and sweet, so much so that in Deuteronomy 32, 13, we hear it referred to as honey and oil. No, it's not honey and oil. It's, it's talking about just how good that water was that the Lord supplied. So great was the Lord's provision. God showed that he cared for his people, and he proved once again his covenant faithfulness to them. I find it amazing that there's nothing recorded here about the jubilation of the people. Remember how they behaved after they saw the armies of Egypt destroyed at the Reed Sea? There's, there's no word here of that. The people don't celebrate. There's no breaking out of the tambourines. Was this situation in any less dire than when Egypt's armies was pursuing them? Is, is, is it any less serious that there's no water, but there's no celebration? There's a lesson there for us. How often do we forget to give thanks to God when he has supplied what we desperately needed? Indeed, all these things are manifestations of the, his glory. It's sometimes, oftentimes, we fail to ascribe unto the Lord the glory due his name. There's something more going on in this text here. As some of you know what it is. The rock that Moses struck is a picture of someone. You children have heard me talk about types. A type is something that points to something else. And this rock points to someone else. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we spoke briefly in the introduction about the events in Sychar when Jesus offered living water to the woman who came to draw water, a sinful woman. He offered her eternal life, and he gave her a new heart. She went back into her village witnessing to the men of the village, and they came out to meet this man, and Jesus ended up staying there, and many were converted. In recent weeks, I have mentioned numerous times, 1 Corinthians 10, turn over there. You know, usually when I mention this, I just refer to the passage that says, you know, these things, Old Testament things, were written for our instructions, but really it's in a very specific context. 1 Corinthians 10, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. You see, this, this is what's happening in the book of Exodus. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Listen, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
What did the people need to live at that point? They were in danger of perishing because of a lack of water. And God supplied them water. And it was a picture of Christ. Even as the woman of Sychar, she needed living water. Even as we sinners today, we need living water. We need Christ. He is the living water. He is the source of life. And that rock that followed them was Christ. The rock at Oreb was a picture of our beloved Redeemer. Paul tells us that this event in the wilderness of sin pointed to Christ, who when struck on the cross, when he was pierced in his side, water and blood flowed down. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son. And indeed, Jesus was the only Son of God. And grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. <coughs> a, lot, <clears throat> a lot being tied together in that moment from the Old Testament passages. Christ died so that we might live. The just died for the unjust. The sinless one died so that we might have everlasting life. Jesus rose again on the third day so that the people could live for another day. And indeed, for all our days. Here, this account back in Exodus. They had the water and they drank of that water. They were refreshed, but they would need to drink water again. And again, and again, and again. To physically, even today, we depend upon water. When the doctors tell us three days without water, we're, we're in serious trouble. You four days, not much more than that, and, and you will die. But the life that Jesus gives, the life-giving water that Jesus is, he saves his people from their sin. And he saves us to the uttermost. That rock that was struck in the wilderness was a picture of Christ. But that rock in the wilderness and the water that flowed from them did not give them eternal life. But it taught them. It was another lesson pointing to the faithfulness of God. He's teaching them, drawing them to think of the promise of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. The Lord is teaching a very dull people. Fourthly, very briefly, I've titled this Memorials of Sin. You look at verse 7. Let's go back over to first, uh, Exodus 17. So he, um, I think this is Moses, who's the he here, who's naming the place. He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's, it's, it's like an accusation. You hear those names, what does that mean to you? Massah, Meribah, I'll tell you what it means. Massah means to test. And Meribah means to quarrel. This rock, this place now has a name. And its name would remind the people of Israel this is where they tested the Lord. 
and where they quarreled with Moses. These names were given to teach the people that they should never have such shameful behavior again. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy 6.16. It's the very words that Jesus quoted when Satan tempted him in a wilderness place where he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. I believe it's when the temple, when the devil wanted him to cast himself down. And he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what they were doing there. But Israel failed to remember that they tested the Lord again and again. How often do we test the Lord? And there's consequences. To go back to 1 Corinthians 10, we ended with this remarkable passage teaching us that what we're seeing in Exodus 17 is Christ, the rock, the living water that he is the source of. Paul goes on, but with most of them, Remember, these, they're, they're passed through the Red Sea, they're under the cloud, they're baptized into Moses, they're eating the manna, they drink this water. But with most of these, most of them, God was not pleased, well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That's an allusion to Exodus 32 in the instance of the golden calf. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. My dear friends, young and old alike, if you have a wish list for Christmas, make sure that you're not looking for something under a tree that will only satisfy you for a few brief seconds. No, I urge you to desire Jesus Christ above all. As the scripture says, I can't can remember the context, but the exhortation is to get, maybe it's not a scripture, maybe it's a commentator, but get Christ with all you're getting. With all that is within you, desire Christ, long after Christ, long to know Him, long to grow in Him, to walk by faith, not by sight. Get Christ with all you're getting. There is no greater gift that's ever been given than God's only begotten Son, the only Savior of sinners. You don't need to go to the mall to search for Him. It's not where He's found. Jesus is right here inviting you to come to him. And he has promised that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. Let this text teach us to depend upon the Lord in all our circumstances. Let this text teach us to depend upon the Lord in all our circumstances. Christ is ever faithful. If you ever question that, 
Look at the cross. He went and he hung on the cross in our place. And he endured the wrath of God that we deserved. He bled and he died so that we might live. He was dead and buried. But that's not the end of the story. He rose again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He has conquered. He has triumphed. He has accomplished all. When he cried out, it is finished. The battle for our souls was completed and it was demonstrated and proved when he rose on that third day that he is who he said he was, that he is the faithful one. Indeed, look to Christ above all else. You all have different circumstances in your lives. And they vary from time to time. Sometimes in God's providence, our circumstances are hard. Maybe a severe illness. It may be financial need. It may be um, broken relationships. But God can open the fountains of his supply in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. Do you see that in the text? They're in a wilderness. And out of a rock came living water. God is able still to provide for us. So if you find yourself in the wilderness, keep walking by faith. Keep your eyes fixed upon Christ. He has promised that he has begun a good work in you. And that work that he has begun in you, he is going to complete it against that day. And that day is that day when he comes again. He has promised he will complete that work in you. So when it comes to the judgment day, You can stand before him who has given you life, clothed in his righteousness, knowing that his blood has washed all your sins away. And in him you are complete. And not because of any good that you have done, but because of the work that he has accomplished, his obedience and his sacrifice, that he can say even to the worst of sinners who has put their faith in Christ, come. Welcome, enter into the rest prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we do thank you and praise you for this lesson. Thank you for instructing us from these old texts, these ancient accounts, uh, these true and faithful accounts, Lord, the, the integrity with which it is told, Lord. We, we hear the complaining of these people, and sadly, we see something of ourselves in it. Lord, we pray that we would also see something of ourselves in Moses as he walked by faith, as he looked to you, as he trusted in you, as he learned to take all of it to you. Lord, help us to live our lives that way, depending upon the one whom you have given, your only begotten Son, who saves to the uttermost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.